You know, I seem to recall about a year ago, a lot of us were wondering if these volcano mining operations that Bukele in El Salvador was promising would ever actually materialize. But browsing the socials today, Dad, I see that the El Salvador Bitcoin volcano mining operation... (laughs) which is so funny to say, has gone live. And it's, it's, a, it's a massive operation. It's currently generating 107 megawatts from thermal energy. And it's using five of those megawatts to mine Bitcoin. And the rest is all going to the grid. And I'm not sure what the average size of, or capacity or output of a geothermal plant is, but around 4% of that is going to Bitcoin mining. So it certainly isn't vaporware. They did do it. I think my skepticism, if you could call it that initially, was simply that Bukele made a lot of big announcements and it was not super clear that there was the institutional capacity to follow through on this. But then it seems like that happened. I don't understand the scale or scope of it either, because looking at the video that's been posted on social media, it's a pretty sophisticated operation with a lot of gear and equipment that they put together and built and got operational in an incredible amount of time. I was a bit skeptical myself. And not only are they now mining this Bitcoin using volcano energy, but they've also launched a mining pool that other Bitcoin miners around the world can join. And I think they didn't build out the entire geothermal plant. I believe that the mining operation was added to an existing facility, which may or may not have been expanded. Am I correct in making that assumption? I it, I don't know. I it's you get such. So this is actually where we were. This is what we were chatting about right before we hit record. Um, I, even to get this news, you either have to get it from some rando on Twitter, or you have to go to something like Euro News Next. You will never find positive coverage except for in the financial press about El Salvador. It is only the negative stuff. And so like they haven't covered this project at all. And now Euro News Next is covering it, but they're not giving us the full context. And this is the number one reason I wanted to go down to El Salvador. Besides going to adopting Bitcoin, I just want to see it for myself because I read a lot of negative stuff in the press. And then I see independent media or media outside the U.S. reporting things like these massively successful geothermal operations that are now mining Bitcoin. And it seems like they executed on a project within a timeline and they delivered on what they said they would. And they've even made it available to the public to join in on. But nobody's talking about it here. And I just want to see it for myself, Dad. I want to get down there and see what's really going on. It was certainly interesting the first time I went to El Salvador last year because I guess I was just kind of skeptical about all of the positive news because there hasn't been a huge amount of positive news coming out of El Salvador for a while. And Bukele tends to ring my alarm bells as this sort of person who makes grandiose statements and then does stuff like mobilize the army and threaten the legislature. And I don't know the whole context behind that, but I mean, you know, that looks looks a little worrying. When I went to Bitcoin Beach, there definitely was Bitcoin instead of payment terminals. And I thought that seemed to make a lot of sense, especially in a small community like that, where businesses that are just very, very small, very little infrastructure, just a a guy and his wife and a cart, and they make food on it, and they're going to sell you that food. And you can either pay with the dirty money, and then they rifle through the Tupperware container full of dollar bills and coins, and then they make the food with those same hands, (laughs) or you can scan a QR code on their phone. So that seemed to make a lot of sense to me. 
I think that implementation of new technologies and payment systems is not necessarily going to be very fast. And I think the story of the developing world is like there isn't a huge amount of money there. And so monetary technologies might or might not explode depending on the local situation. But what I saw was really interesting because it seemed that Bitcoin payments fulfill a need in some places that just have no ability to sort of economically get credit card payments. And then on a national level, some remittances being paid in Bitcoin would remove a lot of transfer costs and seem to directly affect people. And in particular, on the flight going to and from El Salvador, the El Salvadorians who lived abroad that I spoke with, they seemed much more aware of Bitcoin. And though some of them had had problems with the Athena wallet or is it called Athena? The Chivo wallet that was built by Athena, uh. which is the state kind of Bitcoin wallet with a you know dollar payment functionality. Some of them had had problems with that. And it seemed kind of like your typical banking nightmare problems. So not good, but they still wanted to use Bitcoin because it was cheaper or they had used it and they thought it was neat because it was so cheap. So that seemed very promising to me and very interesting. Yeah, I'll be curious to know what your impressions and takeaway are a year later. Do you see more or less Bitcoin adoption? Do you see the mood uh, around the people and towards Bukele shifting? You know, this is going to be my baseline, but for you, you're going to have a year delta to kind of compare to. So I'll be picking your brain while we're there. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Friday, October 6th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here, as always, remotely with me, Chris. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the pod. On today's show, we are going to briefly touch on the Sam Bankman-Fried trial regarding the theft of FTX exchange customer funds. There's news that Chainalysis is simultaneously laying off around 15% of its workforce, while simultaneously the U.S. prosecutor in the Bitcoin Fog Mixer case is trying to prevent discovery of how Chainalysis actually connects UTXOs and is used to accuse people of crimes due to on-chain activity. Kind of interesting. Is the evidence against you in your own trial able to be examined? That's kind of a fundamental question in a democratic court of law. In economics, our favorite Bitcoin billionaire, Arthur Hayes, is back. Uh, he has an article based on a talk he gave at the crypto conference in Singapore that he spoke at, and he has an interesting bit of macro analysis, and he's also trying to pump Filecoin. And so I think we can have a lot of fun dumping on that idea. In privacy, this is completely unrelated to Bitcoin, but kind of touches on the chain analysis case. It was discovered that the Dutch tax office was using privately purchased data to target tax audits. And if you look at the inputs into this model, they're basically targeting immigrants, non-white people, people with foreign connections. It seems like the, the definition of a racist policy, kind of interesting and, and just an argument for having less data out there. The less people know about you, the less they can use it against you. In altcoins, the Ethereum futures ETF has been approved by the SEC. Perhaps this is a bullish sign for a Bitcoin spot ETF, but also Ethereum seems to be the altcoin that got away. Should we give up? on raising red flags about Ethereum, maybe they've won already. Maybe we should have just bought Ethereum. Should this be an Ethereum podcast, Chris? We'll ask all those questions. The Ethereum dad. <laughs> Doesn't have the same ring, does it? ETH dad, ETH fam. It feels like it would be kind of a younger audience. The Lido dad. <laughs> Steve dad. <laughs> 
We also have some Bitcoin education with Optech 271 covering multiple lightning improvements and all of this talk about the marathon pool mining an invalid block brought to light an incredible Bitcoin development blog and a really fascinating article about gathering data on the Bitcoin network and monitoring an entity that seems to be trying to link transaction propagation to IP addresses. Really interesting stuff. So we have that in the notes and we can talk about that. And then we have a bunch of boosts and that is our show. Yes, it is. Now, um, you recall, listener, not long ago, we were talking about the Bitcoin fog case and the role that chain analysis, black magic analysis was playing in order to influence that case and essentially provide, quote unquote, what they call evidence. But it seems chain analysis is undergoing a bit of a transition and has let 150 employees go recently, which is about 15% of its overall around 900 staff. And they also announced that they'll focus on, quote, profitability and selling to governments. Whenever I hear a company say that they're focusing on profitability, that makes me think that they're unable to raise money or borrow money to fund operations at that moment. Is that, is that your instinct too? Yeah, and f- from what I understand, um, there is no VC money. There is no uh, investor investing in anything crypto right now. Uh, if Chainalysis wanted to pivot to AI, they could probably get $300 million knocking on their door. But if they're going to focus on crypto, there's just no investor that's doing that right now. And actually, I think it would be very problematic if they tried to pivot to AI. I mean, that touches on another case about how they actually make the inferences that lead to people being charged with financial crimes based on on on-chain activity. Because one of the problems with machine learning is there is a bit of a black box. You can know the inputs into an AI model, and you can extract some information about how the model weighs these inputs, what signals the model thinks are very sort of strong in order to come to a uh, correct inference that can be checked against their training data. But how it actually does that is sort of necessarily unknowable because the whole point of machine learning techniques is, you know, these are sort of like statistical inferences. They're, they're not supposed to be human readable. I would be shocked if they didn't make some sort of AI announcement in the near future, um, you know, some sort of AI analysis tooling or something like that. Where this is going, and it's obvious because the U.S. Prosecutor's Office is also helping them, is they're going to become a black box for legal cases. Uh, the U.S. Prosecutor's Office has tried to prevent discovery of how chain analysis heuristics work in the Bitcoin fog mixer case. This is pivotal to the case, and a potentially innocent individual is being tried based on implied matched transactions based on you know the type of wallet software he used, the type of transactions he may have historically used in the past, and they matched similar transactions. That's a bit that we do know, and combined it with other heuristics they haven't disclosed. Now, the lawyers that are trying to free this potentially innocent person are trying to do discovery on how these heuristics work. Now, the U.S. Prosecutor's Office is stepping in and preventing that individual from having their right to have that discovered in court. Um, And I think it's because they have a real tidy little arrangement. Chainalysis is going to focus on government and the U.S. government is going to protect their little secret, their little, you know, secret recipe. 
because it's a nice little tidy, convenient arrangement. And uh, we're going to see a bunch of people that are going to be potentially thrown in jail over chain analysis, crap results. And they're going to be shielded by the U.S. government. I mean, it's happening right now. This isn't a hypothetical thing. This isn't a conspiracy theory. This is literally happening this week. And what's interesting is there are a couple sort of levels to the issue. One level is that the U.S. prosecutor claims that the defendant was posting pseudonymously on the Bitcoin talk forums, talking about how Chainalysis and the Bitcoin fog mixer works. So one, I'm not sure if they have conclusively demonstrated that the person they are accusing of running the mixer was this individual on the Bitcoin talk forum. So to me, this reads like there's kind of an assumption of guilt already built into this dispute around discovery. The other question is, I think, a much more technical legal question about how much discovery is appropriate in a criminal case. Because there is some reasonable balance where you have to say, listen, we can't tell you everything about the way law enforcement works. We want to give the defendant sufficient information to defend themselves against charges, but not deprive law enforcement of the ability to then go after future potential criminals. And I think that's quite reasonable on a certain level. At the same time, I think there's a real problem here with chain analysis because one, the US government and governments in general are chain analysis largest customer. And it's generally speaking going to be an either tax authority or law enforcement branch of government that is buying chain analysis services. There's also reporting that the US government has directly invested in chain analysis twice, uh, each time uh, a sort of like $1.34 million, which may or may not be a large amount of funding for chain analysis, but the government is an investor in this company. The problem is that because chain analysis makes inferences that are hard to understand and hard to challenge in a court of law, this could be a very convenient tool to use to conveniently pile evidence onto suspects. Because it's sort of opaque how chain analysis comes to the inferences that are then used to accuse people of crimes, it's a slippery slope. This seems to be bordering on a question of, does the government have the right to say that the evidence against you is secret. And I think once you get to that point, you don't really have a expectation of fairness in the legal system. And I don't know if that expectation even exists today, because I recall reading that by the time a case goes to trial in the US, the conviction rate is around you know 99% or something, which is uh, doesn't seem particularly fair. And I know that there is some sampling bias because there's a, a whole system of uh, convincing defendants to plead, uh, to sort of take plea bargains and to accept guilt rather than take the risk of a trial where there is potentially even harsher punishments. So there's some structural injustice here. And this honestly feels like another step in the way for that structural injustice to get worse. Well, and can you even imagine trying to explain to the judge or the jury the technical limitations of what chain analysis is doing? And then you have the polished presentation by not only the chain analysis staff, but by the U.S. officials that they've coached. You know how this whole thing works, right? It's it's all the whole thing's a sales job all along. And they'd have all the talking points to talk about why it's great and why they have confidence in it and why it's scientifically accurate. And then you've got some defendant there attempting to give an actual technical analysis of why it doesn't work. And it's just going to go over everyone's head. And it seems to be getting enshrined. It is going to be nigh impossible to walk back. I really hope this motion is dismissed and the Bitcoin fog case turns into 
Chainalysis on trial in court because, by their own admission so far in the discovery of this case, Chainalysis does not have scientific evidence for the efficacy of their techniques. They do not have peer review. All they have are law enforcement organizations saying, Yeah, we use Chainalysis. We like it. It helps us convict people. And that is doesn't seem like a fair legal standard. Well, now that we're the altcoin dad show, uh, should we talk a little bit about how Filecoin's just going to pump and there is just such an opportunity here? Isn't that, that's how we do it now, right? We talk about the great opportunity and how it's inevitable it's going to pump and how we should all get in on it. Is that what we do now? <laughs> right, right. Because the moment you become an altcoin show, you immediately start promoting digital tokens that might or might not be securities, right? That's the the number one thing. I was watching this other famous podcast and that seems to be their MO. So we'll 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 follow their lead and just yeah. pump the hell out of this thing. <laughs> just kidding. So our favorite BitMEX co-founder, Arthur Hayes, has another long blog post, and he shares two formulas in this article. One is the price of crypto equals fiat liquidity plus technology. I, obviously, this is sort of a, an investment shorthand, but I, I don't think this is correct at all. Obviously, fiat liquidity is part of any price, but plus technology, I don't know, plus hype. I think is probably more uh, accurate in that formula. But his other formula, which I think is a little bit more interesting, is GDP growth equals population growth plus productivity growth plus debt growth. That's kind of an interesting shorthand. The regular GDP formula is net exports plus government spending plus investment plus consumption, I think. So what is his macro outlook? He has a very bearish macro outlook based on this GDP growth shorthand because population growth is negative in most places in the world. Productivity growth is also low. But how have we been jury rigging GDP growth over the past 20 years? And the answer is debt. When you have a shrinking population, when productivity has been struggling because you're not at a stage in development where you can just invent the steam engine and sort of double the amount of labor uh, any human can do with the assistance of technology, growth tends to stagnate. And increasing the issuance of debt is a way to stimulate growth short term. Because in a sense, debt is borrowing from the future to consume today. And so there's this sort of diminishing returns to debt. The higher your debt load, the amount of debt you have, the more you need to borrow because you have to borrow money to both service your debt, but also feed yourself and also invest. So there's kind of a um, negative spiral to, uh, to debt issuance. What Arthur is getting at is that over the next three years, a massive amount of government debt needs to be rolled over, refinanced. In the U.S., between 2024 and 2026, $7 trillion of U.S. government debt needs to be refinanced. And with interest payments on U.S. debt already being around 15% of the federal budget, another $7 trillion on top of that would push interest payments to a completely unsustainable level of the federal budget, perhaps close to 50%. And when you're at a point where simply paying interest on your debt is consuming 50% of your income, 
you're going to go bankrupt if you're an individual. But if you're a government, you're going to have the central bank purchase all of that debt and sell it. And there are some additional dynamics that suggest that further huge issuances of U.S. government debt will need to be bought by the U.S. central bank. One indication is that oil prices seem to be stuck at a higher level, higher than the advertised refill level of the U.S. SPR. Part of that has to do with disruptions in energy supply chains due to the war in Ukraine and sanctions against Russia. Part of that has to do with net zero energy policy, which has discouraged investment in fossil fuel extraction throughout the world over the past 10 years. Another part of that has to do with the releases of oil from the U.S. uh, Strategic Petroleum Reserve, because those oil releases coupled with rate hikes may have kind of simulated price controls on gasoline for over a year, and this sent a signal to oil producers to produce less oil. There's also geopolitical elements because Saudi Arabia and OPEC seem to be very intent on maintaining higher oil prices, and they've been cutting production as economic activity worldwide stalls. In a sense, this might be making the economic slowdown slash recession worse over time. And what this gets at is that as energy gets more expensive, you have to pay more for it. Obvious, right? Well, if you're going to pay more for energy, what are you going to pay out of? You might end up paying out of your savings. And since even though the accumulation of U.S. government debt on global balance sheets has slowed over the past 10 years, U.S. government debt is still a savings vehicle for governments, central banks, and businesses around the world. And as energy prices increase, that debt will be sold to buy dollars because you cannot trade U.S. government treasury bills or bonds for oil directly. You have to sell them and get dollars first. And so there's a lot of sell pressure in the U.S. government treasury market over the next two years, and energy prices contribute to that. And when you add that to the need to refinance over $7 trillion of U.S. government debt in the next two years, this means that there's very likely only one buyer for this debt, and this will be the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve's balance sheet is already around $7 trillion, and it will likely double in the next two years to accommodate the amount of borrowing that the U.S. government will need to keep solvent and functioning. And that means we're going to get another asset bubble. That's just the mechanics of it. As the Federal Reserve purchases U.S. government debt, it increases the amount of financial money in the world. And that money, in a sense, has to flow through financial markets before it can do anything useful like buy energy or buy food or buy government goods. That will be incredibly stimulative to risk assets. And this is the point where we would say, oh, wow, Bitcoin would probably benefit from that environment. But Arthur is really into AI right now. And so he makes a very complicated case for the demand for AI and the limitless potential for profit in the AI market will also create a limitless demand for data. And how do you speculate on the amount of data storage available in the world? Is he going to buy stocks in Western Digital? Is he going to try and invest in Chinese flash memory startups? No, he's going to buy Filecoin. Can you explain this to me, Chris, because I think you have more experience with decentralized storage. Do you think decentralized storage and AI are like cookies and milk? Do they go together really nicely? You know, I think anybody that's done a little bit of IT and had to run like any kind of busy database or any kind of thing that requires a lot of disk IO, you know, there's some storage setups that are optimized for that kind of workload. And there's some that are not IPFS, 
the Filecoin creator also created IPFS. IPFS is not inherently tied to Filecoin, but they work well together. IPFS works great, quote unquote, with about five disclaimers for small file retrieval. You know, you could conceivably host a website, a static website from IPFS. I use it right now to distribute my Office Hours podcast, and it works pretty well. But your files have to be popular enough that node operators choose to pin them. They don't just automatically stay persistent in the IPFS network. Filecoin tries to add an economic model to incentivize randos on the internet storing your files that you pump onto IPFS. And in theory, if IPFS was a high-performant network where you could get data extremely fast at wire speed, maybe Arthur would be right. But, you know, we here at JB run in uh, Llama and Llama 2, and we run Whisper, and we run several internal chat GPT competitors. And it's not always the case, but there are absolutely moments when you're using those systems, especially when you're when you're starting up uh, additional capacity, you're loading models. Disk speed makes a big difference. And for that, you need direct attached attach storage, like, you know, like some NFS mount or IPFS or something over HTTP is just not going to be fast enough. Not only are the communication protocols inherently more complex and slower, but then the line speeds are slower as well. Or something like fiber attached storage is going to be not only faster on the line, but is also less lower overhead for the system. And so you, you just get a massive performance benefit when you use the appropriate storage. For large language models, they do ultimately run in RAM, but those models have to be loaded to and from the disk. And when you're spinning up additional resources like you might for a software as a service type model where you have millions of people using it, you're going to need a lot of local storage. In fact, I think this would lead to a lot of centralization in data centers and centralization in storage. I do not think this is going to lead to decentralization at all. But like I was saying earlier, the only money, the only easy money that's out there at all right now is in tech for AI. If you're looking at the tech sector, the only place that's getting easy money right now is AI. So if any crypto project can attach themselves to AI in any way possible. They're doing it. And this is Filecoin. Solana's trying to cook up some BS connection as well. And uh, I, I, just, I just don't love Filecoin. It is one, I will grant them this, it is one of the more interesting altcoins out there. Um, they do have a capped supply. It's massive. It's like 2 billion. But they've done what essentially works out to like a 30% pre-mine. Now, some of that is distributed among miners. Uh, some of it was distributed amongst early users that did like the space race to think to like seed the network and test capacity some of it's for a foundation and a team but it essentially works out to be roughly roughly a 30-ish percent pre-mine on two billion coins and filecoin is currently trading at three dollars and 32 cents down from its march 31st 2021 high of 191 dollars per filecoin so this is an altcoin that has pumped three times it is dumped and now the question is is it just going to slide down to the below dollar level to the pennies level and just slide into obscurity or are the holders the the team behind it going to be able to manufacture another pump and i think that's a you know that's an open question maybe we'll people see. we'll like, see when that asset bubble comes along if they can nail the timing on that asset bubble i think filecoin will be one of them that pumps it's my bet and what I think is really interesting about 
Arthur discussing Filecoin and AI is that Arthur is uh, he's he's a former trader. He used to work for uh, I think Deutsche Bank and and uh, some other financial companies in Southeast Asia. He was based in Hong Kong. He was a very successful trader. He has some really interesting uh, macro observations. I do not think he is particularly technical in terms of artificial intelligence, machine learning, computer systems. And so when I've read his interest in the AI mania, I've rolled my eyes. And you know, this article is me rolling my eyes so hard, one of them fell out of my head, because it just completely misunderstands how machine learning systems ingest data. The bottlenecks in machine learning systems, it's compute related. Machine learning exploded when NVIDIA CUDA technology enabled super large matrices to be loaded onto GPUs and how GPUs could be sort of uh, chained together to load even larger matrices. And this kind of unlocked neural compute models. But also, if you're dealing with very large data sets, they need to be stored in RAM or, you know, at the very least on flash storage attached to your PCIe bus. And these are incredibly expensive storage technologies. And there's absolutely no way to decentralize this because even if you had data sets spread across servers that were using incredibly expensive memory to hold the data, there are not fiber lines that stretch across the world. High-speed transfer is confined to local data centers. It has to go over slow internet to go between data centers. So this is not something that can be decentralized at all. It's just completely farcical. It, it misses about three details. So I think this is kind of an interesting article, but I think a lot of the AI hype is incredibly non-technical and doesn't really understand uh, how machine learning works, the technical limitations of model training and data centers, you know, and then connecting this to an investing thesis is super hard because we don't even know what the social impact of things like ChatGPT are. People point to these charts and say, look, ChatGPT has gotten more users faster than any other application in existence. Therefore, the company behind it is worth however many billion dollars. They're claiming 90 right now. And that's completely ludicrous from my perspective. Because, I mean, I think you're a user of ChatGPT. I've used ChatGPT. I, I mean, it's great for summarizing things. You can create a pretty good chatbot out of it. But I'm just, I'm, I'm really like, are you able to automate data cleaning or like replace human analysis. I mean, that's the expensive thing that you want to replace here. And I'm just not seeing it from my experience of the tool. Yeah. My human analysis says that you're going to have a handful of winners and we're already seeing who they are and they will just continue to be the dominant winners. Also speaking to Arthur's analysis of Filecoin, I completely understand he would miss this because it's very small and very new, but IPFS podcasting has shown us that you can actually incentivize the IPFS operators with the Lightning Network and just SATs. So on office hours, when you boost office hours, a percentage of that boost goes to the IPFS node operators. Whoever served the file gets gets like a 5% split or a 3% split, whatever you set. And that incentivizes them to store because they're earning SATs on the Lightning Network and they don't have to mess around with any kind of altcoin. So you can monetize IPFS and network storage with just good old sats. It doesn't need an altcoin. You mean that you can just pay people for doing things for you? You don't need to create a laundry token for every single application in the world? My goodness, it's like the entire altcoin hypothesis is wrong. I know, but don't take investment advice from us because apparently Ethereum is the one that got away. So (laughs) what do we know? You know, like there's an Ethereum ETF that's going to happen. I think institutionally 
Typically, it's a lock in the main mainstream financial press. They often talk about Bitcoin and Ethereum in the same breath. Yeah, it feels like Bitcoin is like Apple and Microsoft or something. Bitcoin is like the genuine currency innovation and Ethereum might be like a technology platform innovation that has a monetization mechanism built into it that the team has specifically throughout the history of the project built incentive after incentive and mechanism after mechanism to encourage you not to sell with proof of stake and lockups and derivatives. They've created this technology platform that has its own built-in monetization mechanism and because there's all these games you can play with derivatives, it also sort of creates this possibility for people to play around on that side too. So you get like Cloudflare uh, running validators and crap like that. So that way they can make a little staking revenue. I look at it as like the technology industry's platform to play with. And I think ultimately it's still a very risky investment because of the centralization, because of the complexity of the platform, uh, because it's really its unfinished nature, right? Bitcoin has been very iterative for a very, very long time. The original protocol is still the same since pizza day. So if you have a wallet that's that old, you're still going to, you're still right. That is not the case with Ethereum, right? Ethereum is an evolving, complex technology platform. That's how I see it. You need to be on the latest version of Ethereum node software, or you're not on Ethereum, you're on your own network. And with Bitcoin, I mean, there have been accidental hard forks in the very early days of Bitcoin, but you can go back many versions of Bitcoin, maybe even 10 releases or more ago, and you're not going to be on a different network. So what this means is that Bitcoin is set it and forget it technology. You can load up a Bitcoin node today and it will be validating Bitcoin for the foreseeable future. You can go into your coma, wake up, your Bitcoin is still there. You didn't need to do anything. This is sort of a very safe monetary technology, or at least that's the goal. Whereas with Ethereum, you better be on top of that. And I think that a lot of the narratives around how Ethereum was moving off of proof of work, and this was going to make it so easy to validate, and it was going to be even more decentralized, you could run a whole bunch of Ethereum staking nodes on your MacBook Air in your kitchen, and it would be totally fine. This is completely not the case. What has happened instead is that as Ethereum has gotten increasingly complex, increasingly complex financial game of validation that involves multiple parties. This is centralized Ethereum consensus into staking providers like Lido. Does Fireblocks also do staking? And Coinbase, of course. And what's really interesting is that in many ways, this breaks the security assumptions around proof of stake because the entire, the the fundamental security concept of the proof of stake model is that if I stake my coins, I am giving up the ability to spend them, right? Duh, no way. Like, of course. But what happened instead was if I stake my coins with Lido, I get the staked ETH token, which is basically the same price as Ethereum. So I can both stake my coins and also spend them. Well, then how does the security model work? I don't understand. And what it means is you need entities like Lido, these large centralized staking entities, to play very nice with the network and to not get regulated and to not get shut down, to not get hacked. There's a huge amount of trust and centralization risk here, but there always was with legacy finance. And so I think it it plays very nicely with legacy finance. And it seems that now Ethereum gets a futures ETF, which Bitcoin got a few years ago. And maybe one day after Bitcoin gets a spot ETF, Ethereum will also get a spot ETF. So I really think that this is the altcoin that it got away. It got so big. It got so popular. So many wealthy people already own it and have a, a stake in it. I think the savvy thing that the Ethereum dev team did, Dad, was they built in 
these spots for middlemen to come in and essentially have bags that they protect. That was, that was, if you think about it, it was, they've done some things that are engineered very cleverly. And so you, you know, when you've created these super complex, heavy duty, resource intensive nodes, you're not, you're not distributing anything. You're actually centralizing them in very high end data centers that use a lot of power and water. And so the whole environmental argument was actually total crap, but you know, you're, you're also self-selecting for a certain tier of operator that can even afford to do that. Same with the staking, right? You have to have a certain amount of ETH, a, a, a essentially wealthy amount of ETH to run a validator. And so you, again, are self-selecting for the richest in the network. And those people are creating businesses like Lido and Coinbase do. And you've created these middlemen that have bags now that are going to, of course, help push this thing mainstream. Ethereum at every step over the last few years has been adapting itself to be compatible with the institutions. And in doing so, they've sort of ensured that this would happen. And I think it's cynical. And I think it's kind of pathetic that Ethereum diehards don't see it. And I think it's also going to eventually blow up in everybody's face one day, but it could be years down the road when it affects many, many more people. But here we are. And I don't, it doesn't change any of the fundamentals about the technology. What it does show us is that if you do get a certain amount of momentum, you do get a certain amount of network effect, and you bring in enough institutional bag holders with incentives to help you succeed, you have a shot. I think you said that before, but it really clicked for me just now. Ethereum really is the ultimate self-licking ice cream cone. In a way, Bitcoin's openness and its lack of incentive to just hold forever and stake and rehypothecate means that Ethereum does have the ability to sort of, I don't know, lever itself up faster in a way. Because when the proof of work unlocks happened, we thought that there was a chance there would be large scale selling of Ethereum because Ethereum proof of stakers had been locked up for, I think, two years at that point. But what happened instead was the Ethereum options and derivatives markets exploded. So it seemed that the sort of people who were staking Ethereum, who held the large pools of Ethereum, were fairly sophisticated investors like hedge funds. And they understood that selling was not the only way to unlock the value of the Ethereum they owned. Instead, they engaged in relatively complex financial transactions involving derivative tokens and futures contracts and other sort of financial complexities to extract value without selling. And I mean, that is exactly what blew up all of the Bitcoin and crypto lenders. But somehow that's working for Ethereum right now. I think it's really interesting. And I think, I don't know. I mean, I feel like we're a fan of the dumb technology and they're playing around with the the clever technology because they're, I don't know, there, there seems to be like a something from nothing here. Is it like we're the modern version of gold bugs and they're the modern, modern like financial people that are doing all of this different machinations to make all these different absolutely. profits, right? It's, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's like in yeah. those ICO booms when we felt kind of left out, that's what I'm feeling right now. Yeah, I've never been drawn to all the financial shenanigans, but obviously it can pay well if you do it right. And Ethereum's like tooling for those people. I mean, just think about it. Like you, if it gets big enough, all of these departments in all of these top corporations that have all like been financialized, that all work on like just making all of their money from financial things, like maybe they start screwing around with stuff like this one day. Like this is just, it's, 
it's a playground for these people. Um, and I don't know. We'll see if it actually ends up doing anything like that, though. I, mean, I would think for any like ETF future or spot, you know, like to really get get traction, I would think that you're, you're still at some day you're going to need to have, uh, you know, some sort of utility and use for Ethereum uh, besides just monkey JPEGs and, you know, gas fees. And with Bitcoin, it is a separation of state and money that is separate from all of the institutional systems, even at the end of the day, even, you know, even it brought the price down temporarily, it is completely divorced technically from all of those institutions where Ethereum is just integrating uh, at the exact, at you know, right into the foundation of the institution. It's, it's going to be right along for the ride. Uh, I just, okay. All right. I think Bitcoin is still the longer safer bet, but you know, maybe people that got a little bit of ETH, Maybe they'll get to sell it a nice little profit here in the future, you know, and they can either cash that out, they could keep it, or maybe they maybe they stack some sats with it. I'm I'm happy for them. I hope they can mine that transaction in an OFAC compliant block because that's another fun thing about Ethereum. A lot of their blocks are OFAC compliant. Yes, yes. Which makes me uh, want to talk about privacy. And this was a sort of random find on my part, but it's an article about the Dutch tax office. And it turned out that a group inside the tax authority in the Netherlands have been gathering a lot of personal information about taxpayers, including their social media messaging. And using this data, they could infer a lot of things about people and create profiles, which included nationality, family relationships, property ownership, debts. And they started um, using this to classify people as uh, fraudsters or potential fraudsters. And what's interesting is that one, this is a form of sort of behavioral surveillance because they're they're taking what you're doing on social media, what you're doing in realms of life that you would think would be unconnected to your tax or, or financial activity. And they're using that as an input to make financial decisions about you. But the other thing is that this information, it's actually very easy to infer characteristics like gender, ethnicity from this. And so by definition, any judgments using these models they created are discriminatory. And they use this to audit maybe up to 2,000 people. So it's kind of an interesting little story about how we're currently at a point where data collection and internet technology has so completely surpassed privacy technology and privacy best practice that this just enables basically any entity with a little bit of motivation and a little bit of money to gather data about you and use that however the hell they want. And in no way will this ever benefit you at all. And it could, in this case, severely disadvantage people who just are a little bit different than the rest of the taxpayers. So they they stand out. They use social yep. media in a yep. different way. They have yep. family members who are from different countries or speak different languages. This creates potentially red flags in databases like this. So it seems incredibly problematic. And when I read this article, I have a hard time imagining that the US IRS is not also doing something similar. Boy, it's foggy. But I think a year or two ago, we covered a story on Coda Radio about uh, a software shop that was going around and essentially selling to the FBI and to the IRS this, you know, 
public analysis in a box. It will pull in public social media feeds because I think they're legally allowed. I don't know if the Dutch laws are different, but we're in Deutschland. But I hear in here in the United States of America, uh, they're allowed to suck in all that information off of social media. So any public social media post. Um, and then there's there's this category of data brokers they can also interface with, like credit card data brokers, phone data brokers, location data brokers, like for 20 bucks. Um, they can buy location information for anyone. And so they just set a budget. It goes out there. It uses an API to just go get the information and it collects it all and they sell it as a package. And it could be the same folks that are selling it to the Deutsche government. Like it's this ready to go thing to help you monitor your citizens. And I hate to say it, dad, but you know, a few years down the road, some kind of blockchain explorer analysis of transactions or whatever will be part of this kind of package. And they'll put it, they'll, they'll put a whole picture together. And I remember the reason why I specifically remember talking about this is it was an early ish use of image recognition. So they would see like, if you'd posted a picture that seemed like maybe you were on a beach or in vacation, they might flag you if it didn't match with your profile. Like you had too much money. Yes. Yeah. Like, or maybe you hadn't claimed something. So there's just little things like they would, so it wouldn't necessarily mean you got investigated, but it would mean like if they scanned 30,000 people, they would flag 5,000 of those people and then do a further analysis and then whittle the list down again. And the thing that really stuck out to us at the time, because it was fairly new, was they were looking at your pictures and they were identifying faces in the pictures and and connecting that together. And that's all just part of the service they offer. And I think what's especially disturbing to me about this in the context of tax authorities is that, at least in the United States, we know that the IRS does not audit very wealthy people. They focus, they, they actually do internal analysis to find people who will not be able to fight an audit. And so their incentive is to like essentially maximize tax revenue from poor people. And that just seems fundamentally unfair in my view. Yeah, they're going after the folks that, I mean, it's just, you know, how much cost on their side too, right? Because you could go after one person who could probably make, who could cover for thousands of the poor people you could go after. And the time to go after that one person is so much less than to go after a thousand individuals, but yet that's where they're spending their resources. And, you know, their perspective is, is this software helps us save money and it makes us more efficient and it, it brings in more revenue for the government, right? So the internal justification is really solid. Well, I'm thoroughly depressed now. Should we go to Bitcoin education to cheer ourselves up? Yes, let's let's break out of the system because we need we need something that's outside the system. So we have two pretty interesting pieces here. Optech 271 covers a variety of lightning improvements. It feels like Bitcoin Optech is largely lightning these days. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Hmm. Well, there's a lot of work to do. <laughs> Some of these proposals include a way to securely remote control your lightning node. This is really interesting because you could have a signing device like a cold card in CK bunker mode authorizing lightning node transactions. And so this would be a way to better secure lightning nodes. So you wouldn't have to have a hot private key directly on the node. It would be on a slightly diff, a slightly separated, slightly more hardened system that didn't accept inbound network connections from anyone, but, but just from this node perhaps. And, uh, and so that would be an, a very large, I think, security improvement on the existing Lightning model, which involves hot private keys with funds on servers that are open to the internet. It's actually sounds a little reckless when you think about it. <laughs> Don't store more on there than you're willing to lose, Dad. Tell that to Ellen Big, <laughs> who's, who's, of course, one of the largest Lightning node providers uh, on the network. Should we go into these others? I think this linking line thing is, is sort of fascinating. 
it looks like a very studious node operator was noticing that some person or some device out there was just bringing in a bunch of short-lived connections to his node. And he initially thought, this is some inbound connection flutter. And he wrote, he wrote a blog post about it, but then he started looking at it and analyzing it further. And he believes that someone is trying to link Bitcoin and maybe even Monero transactions to IP addresses, like some sort of blockchain analysis company that's figuring out a way by flooding nodes to start identifying the IPs behind certain transactions. This is separate from the Optech. This is OXB10C, who is a pseudonymous Bitcoin developer, has received grants from over eight separate Bitcoin-related entities and has made a lot of really interesting Bitcoin contributions, including the Bitcoin D Observer Tool, which is a uh, Prometheus metrics exporter for your Bitcoin node, which is just super cool. So this is like awesome pseudo-enterprise technology or, or hobbyist technology, and also does a lot of work gathering data on the Bitcoin network. And so uh, this developer's own tools are being deployed to gather data that's ephemeral about the Bitcoin network for future analysis. I mean, presumably for the purpose of improving the network, not for surveillance. And as a result, he identified this entity, Linking Lion, that has a sort of interesting network footprint. So the interesting thing uh, about this write-up, I think, is that we knew that this behavior, the ability to connect to almost any Bitcoin node and then request information from the node was possible. But it is actually kind of difficult to see this data in the wild because Bitcoin nodes collect information that is important for debugging node performance and also for maintaining Bitcoin consensus. To observe the activity of entities that connect to the node and may have sort of non-standard behavior or non-standard goals other than Bitcoin consensus requires an additional level of analysis. And so what this developer saw is that this entity would connect to nodes, would generally be several blocks behind, and would advertise themselves as having kind of a weird node version. And so it looks like this is not actually a Bitcoin node connecting to other nodes, but rather a program that contains lists of standard inputs for a Bitcoin, uh, like a handshake with another node, and then is choosing randomly from these lists to sort of appear to be different entities. But I guess due to the cost of sort of uh, maintaining many IP addresses was identifiable because uh, this entity uh, was using, I think, a maximum of um, about 850 IP addresses. Wow. And these addresses were grouped in uh, pretty definable subnets. Hmm. Hmm. So you could maybe potentially block the IP ranges. Yeah. And it looks like, uh, wow, it looks like it's being used against Bitcoin nodes since uh, 2018. And, and there's some evidence has been used against Monero nodes since 2020. Wow. Yeah. And it's it's unclear if it's multiple uh, individuals or if it's just one individual, like trying to enrich their chain analysis data or something. Right. And I think that's the story here. This is likely chain analysis or elliptic. This is the kind of data that a blockchain forensics company would be collecting because the obvious useful way to use this data is to basically pin down what node broadcasts a Bitcoin transaction because then you can connect an IP address to a transaction and IP addresses tend to be 
pretty non-private. You can usually identify who or or what address is associated with that IP address, and that obviously adds a whole nother dimension to data about Bitcoin transactions. Yeah. Mm. Let us know what you think. You can get in touch with the show at Bitcoin Dad Pod at protonmail.com or of course Weapon X at Bitcoin Dad Pod or just join the Matrix channel. Conversations always going. Just grab Element and then we'll have links in the show notes for the Bitcoin. There's also a discussion and a questions chat room going all along. And while you're out there browsing the web, go check out Jupiter Broadcasting, my podcast network at jupiterbroadcasting.com. We just came out with a brand new episode of Self-Hosted where we kind of get into the practical reasons and maybe somewhat idealistic reasons for reusing older hardware and then where we do draw that line at. Also, just some great picks in there and some great feedback. It's just a solid episode of Self-Hosted. Of course, you can find Coder Radio, Linux Unplugged, and Office Hours all over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. I listened to the previous episode of Self-Hosted, and it was quite interesting to see how the Plex Media Project now seems to be partnering with streaming companies and sanctioning Plex users who might be torrenting or might have kind of non-standard behavior. And so Plex is yeah. clearly collecting data on their users. And, you know, goodness, if uh, if you were torrenting or something, I mean, you, you could be sued by the RIAA for you know, millions of it's dollars. Uncomfortable. That's uncomfortable. That's uncomfortable. It's pretty scary. I've been using Jellyfin this whole time, and it does leave much to be desired, but it works. Most it's of the not time. spying on you. Yeah, yeah. It is not spying yeah. on you. Yeah. Plex contacted uh, some VPS providers too and said, shut them down. Uh, they suspected they were like reselling services or something like that, but it's just, how did they know? But you know what I know, dad? We have baller boosts. You want to take our first boost from Jeff? It's listener Jeff. Well, now I feel bad because Jeff is a JB guy, but I'm going to go and do that. He sent in 100,000 sats with the message, sorry, I am late to the party. Happy 100th. And thank you so much, Jeff. We met at a Jupiter Broadcasting meetup, and I really appreciate you listening to the pod. And if you still make it for the Linux Fest meetups coming up in a week or so, he'll be there for those too. You can say hi and thanks in person. Be great. Jeff, you are our temple this week. Uh, you really brought the boosts up this week, so thank you for that baller boost. Mirror Mortal Podcast comes in with a row of ducks, and he says, it's the first good explanation of Mev that I've heard. Chris and Dad rock. Thank you, Mirror Mortals. Keep up the good work over there. Go check out Kyron, too, on the Value for Value Podcast. Also, another great addition to the space. Thank you so much, Mirror Mortals. Do you think Mirror Mortals has the record as the fittest Value for Value podcaster? Definitely. Yeah. 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 They're, you know, because they're always doing like their goals and they're like working out and learning languages and stuff. And meanwhile, it's like an accomplishment for me to just be cognizant and aware when we sit down to record, you know, like different bars for different folks. I tell you what. <laughs> Hal was right. Boosts in 2100 sats listening to financial repression is literally here. With the message, look for a Bitcoin meetup for someone to swap cash for Bitcoin in person or check out Agora Desk to find traders. The most private way to do trades for cash at a distance is through mail to a private mailbox, not your home. Uh, but there have been cases where the counterpart has gotten the other party in trouble by association if the counterparty was involved in naughty things. So Hal was right is sending in some advice about non-KYC ways to acquire Bitcoin. And of course, we've talked about RoboSats, and I'm also a big fan of BISC, which is a yep. big commitment, but also a lot of fun. 
And people love Hoddle Hoddle out there too. Um, I feel like one day when the pod's real big, we should be having dad pod meetups, you know, on the regular all around the world because of the size of the dad pod, you know, worldwide audience. And then at those meetups, there's just like a standard P2P little action going on, you know, like a little Bitcoin P2P minute. We take a little half hour and people do their exchanges. And maybe we also exchange like TPG keys. I mean, I don't know. That would be awesome. What I would also like is we would have a vehicle like on jack stands. And so we could get underneath and flush the fluids, you know, maybe rotate the tires. We might have uh, a patch of lawn that needs mowing or something, uh, maybe a kitchen cabinet that had to be hanging. So we could do all of the dad stuff, including P2P. And of course, <laughs> of course, there would also be brewskis. This is great. That's the dream. Yeah. And chili, maybe chili. Halleck boosts in with 10,000 sats, but no message using fountain. Thank you, Halleck. And Carolyn Danner comes in, and I think we got it wrong, Dad, with 2,121 sats. Yikes! All the Satoshi White Papers are original art, not posters. See, we as plebs, as art plebs, called them posters because they were in a wall on the wall. <laughs> now, my process is paper glued down on and scrapped off to leave the Satoshi White Paper words. String outlines for network effects and many layers of paint added to Lennon canvas. CarolynDanner.com. Thanks for all you do. Thank you, Carolyn. Thank you for the boost. And thank you for correcting us art plebs. Right. Yes. I, you know, I probably said poster because as a oh, I'm pleb. Sure I did. I see something on a wall. I call it a poster. Yeah. (laughs) I went to the art museum. I God, you got a lot of nice posters in here. (laughs) I know. I'm so bad. Same. 100% the same here. Well, thank you, everybody who did boost in. Also, a shout out to Bob B, who sent in a 3,000 sat reoccurring boost. We appreciate that. That was all the boosts that are going to make the cutoff, but we had 117,831 sats stacked. Big part of that was listener Jeff. If you got some value from the show, please let us know. If you hear us talk about something and you want to give us your thoughts on it, a boost is a great way to support the show and get your message right on the air and get us talking. A couple of ways to do that. I think the fun and coolest way to do it is these new podcast apps. Lots of features in there. And then you can go find podcasts that are designed to take advantage of all these features. And it's like a whole new era of podcasting. Uh, Office Hours is a, a quintessential example of one of these shows if you want to see what i'm talking about podcastapps.com then you get a boost button right there in the app it's pretty nice podverse castomatic fountain all very popular with our audience if you really love your podcast app and our metrics tell us you do you can keep it just get albie you get albie.com you top it off over the lightning network that's either directly inside the app they got a couple of options now even on chain you can do an on-chain transaction or something like the cash app or robosats something on the lightning network you top off albie you go to the podcast index and you boost the dad pod. We'll have links to all of that in the notes. And we really appreciate everybody who steps up and supports this production of the Bitcoin dad pod. This has been the Bitcoin dad pod recorded on Friday, October 6th, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin dad and I'm here remotely as always with me. It's Chris. Thanks for being here, everybody. See you next time.